Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. Confused. That's what we are. <laughs> Almost all the time. Confused about yes. kung fu. Uh, my name's Cameron. My name's Chrissy. And our son is called Fox, and he actually came up with that word, I don't know, some, some, like sometime in the last year. Um, all three of us are kung fu practitioners, Wing Chun, kung fu. And we were driving home. Fox is nine. Um, might have been eight at this point. I can't remember. But we were driving home from Kung Fu one day. And he said, I wasn't sure about something he was doing. And he said, I'm so confused. And we just thought that was hilarious. <laughs> so we thought that was a good name for the podcast. So uh, let's talk about what this podcast series is going to be about uh, or what it's not going to be about. Let's start with that. Okay. It's not going to be about kung fu techniques. Nope. Uh, because we don't know shit. <laughs> <laughs> the more we learn, the more we learn that we don't know. The less so. we know. Yeah. yeah. Um, <clears throat> so Chrissy and I are very passionate students of kung fu. So is Fox. Uh, but we're not. Masters, we're not even really good students. <laughs> <laughs> we, tr we, we try our best. People around us seem to think we're a little bit crazed. Crazed? Yeah. Yes, we are crazy. People around us in our lives. But, um, mm. yeah, I mean. We're obsessed with Kung Fu. Yeah. We've been doing it, you and I, about coming up to three years, Fox uh, coming up to two years. I... I did karate, Shotokan karate, uh, as a teenager for quite a few years and loved it, reached a fairly high level. Uh, then took a break only because I sort of moved interstate and never got around to getting back into it. Did do some Wing Chun when I lived in Melbourne about 20 years ago, 18, 19 years ago for a while. But then I moved and didn't get back into it. Always wanted to, always loved martial arts since my dad took me to see Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris movies at the drive-in growing up. Um, always been always been fascinated with, with martial arts and always wanted to get back into it and it was only a couple of years ago that we finally stumbled into doing martial arts together as a family. Um, but what I have been doing for nearly 20 years is history podcasts on all sorts of topics – ancient history, contemporary 20th century history. Um, I did podcasts on investing and, I don't know, other things, AI. So doing a podcast about the history of Kung Fu seems like a natural thing for me to do because I want to know about the history. I know the high-level stuff that we all know. We all know something, something Shaolin, okay. um, but that's about it. And I want to know more about how Kung Fu developed at Shaolin, why it developed at Shaolin, and all the different styles and lineages that came out of it and why and when and where, et cetera, et cetera. What about you? Why, why, did I, why am I doing Kung Fu? Why are you doing a podcast about Kung Fu? Well, 
Uh, by the way, I should point out that I've been doing podcasts for nearly 20 years. You and I have been together for nearly 15 years. This is the first time that we've ever tried to do a podcast together. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And normally when I try and talk about anything history-related, you can focus for about 10 seconds and then you try and stab me in the throat. <laughs> um, and your eyes roll up in the back of your head. You start frothing at the mouth and, sh- and shaking like you've been – you're either having an epileptic fit or you've been possessed by Beelzebub or something. Is that what's happening to me? Could be. Yeah, or you oh. think I'm possessed by Beelzebub <laughs> and you need to exercise the demon by stabbing me. I think those thought, yeah, it was along the that thought line maybe in the first year we were together. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah, I, I mean, we talk about Kung Fu so much already. Yeah. Um, and I think that we're at the point in our training where we, I, I, we're, we're kind of at a point in our training where we're at a bit of a ceiling, wouldn't you say? A ceiling. Yeah. God, and I hope not. <laughs> if this is as good as I've ever gonna get. No, 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 no. It's like this is a skyscraper. Oh. We're like we're on the first, we're on the ceiling of the first floor. Yeah. And there's a hundred stories yeah. high. Yeah. yeah. I, I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, just for our path that have been set out for us by our seafoods. And just like I feel it. Um, uh, and I just feel like we're already talking about it so much. I'm very curious about it. Um, why not do a podcast? And you and I, yeah, we, I mean, we could honestly record some of our conversations and it would be entertaining. Well, that's pretty <laughs> just much Just about doing, Kung yeah. Fu and why not learn. And kind of, I feel like learning more about it and further deepening our knowledge about it might help us with our training and might help us with our mindset and might help us... Um, it might help me focus more. As you already like explained, well, I don't choose what I focus what my brain focuses on. Well, and I think part of it for me is I like going deep in stuff, um, which is why I started podcasting in the first place, because I was reading books on stuff and I thought, well, I might as well talk about it. But you and I have already talked about the fact we're gonna we're gonna do kung fu for the rest of our lives if our bodies allow us to. Yeah. You know. And for for all of the health benefits that we get from it, not just physical, but uh, emotional, psychological, uh, the community, the friendships, mm. um, everything. It's just been many levels of positive and, and for Fox as well, you mm-hmm. know, and, and all of the benefits that he gets out of it in those areas as well. So it's something we're going to do for decades. Mm-hmm. We might as well learn as much as we can about it and the history of it and the philosophy of it. And mm-hmm. and as I've already learned through preparing for this week's episode, there's a lot of overlaps between the philosophy of uh, from where Kung Fu came from and our personal philosophies anyway that we've been living by for, in my case, 30-odd years, your case since you met me, uh, you know, 15 years ago. Mm. Um, yeah. I was going to ask, though, were you asking also why I want to do Kung Fu? 
Well, why am I into it? Is that that's coming up? Yes. Okay. okay. Um, I was just going to say that one of the things that I've learnt in preparing for this episode, I read um, a couple of books on the history of Shaolin Temple. Everyone, of course, associates Kung Fu with the Shaolin Temple. Neither of us have been to the Shaolin Temple, but my mother was there a couple of months ago. Yes, she was. Weirdly, zero interest in Kung Fu, but happened to be on a tour of China with a friend of hers and spent a day at Shaolin. And now just sends us random reels on Facebook. and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, but hopefully, uh, as we progress with the series, we'll get experts on different styles and the history and philosophy to come on. But I've talked about my history with martial arts. It's been something I've been obsessed with since I was a kid in one way, shape or form, either practicing it or watching martial arts movies. Um, what about your relationship with martial arts? Where did that start? Well, it started in 1980 with Karate Kid. <laughs> 1984, but I can't 1984. Yeah. In the how, 80s, 1980s in, is what I meant. How old were you in 1984? I was five. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah, like I saw it and, you know, I grew up in small town Utah. Um, and there was, I'd never seen anything like it, of course. But it was just like, whoa. And it was the coolest thing too. And I was, you know, I was into it. And I kind of like dreamt of doing something like that, like allowed myself to have a daydream about it, I guess. Um, but I think in general, I really enjoy physicality and I really enjoy kind of powerful sort of dynamic physicality. Um, so I always was doing gymnastics Um like, I think maybe just a bit of lessons, but mainly just teaching myself, my sister and I, and doing lots of stuff like that with my body. Um, did lots of mountain climbing and stuff here. I don't have the opportunity to do that kind of stuff. So I don't know. It, it's when you, when we, when you said, I want to do Wing Chun. Kung Fu. And I was, I was like, yeah, I'll try, I'll try it. Yeah, for sure. Like, I don't know. It was just a thing. And then suddenly I realized that, yeah, this is what I'm meant to be doing. <laughs> it's the exact way it's all the things about it is what I love. Yeah. You know, I just love moving my body. I love the flexibility. I love the powerful dynamic. I love, I love it all. And, and the soft dynamic and all of it. You've always been sort of into running and the gym, and but never you've never done any martial arts before we started Kung Fu a couple of years ago. No, but I've been active my whole adult life, yeah. like doing lots of different stuff, just um, not a martial art. And I lived in Seattle for nine years. Like I should have become more curious about Bruce Lee while I was there, and I just – it, and Jimmy it wasn't Hendrix really on my radar. Yeah. And Kurt Cobain. I was like in Bill Gates. I was in the Jeff Bezos. Cool music building and yeah. UW. Just you like. went to the same <laughs> university as Bruce Lee, which we'll yeah. talk about. So we get yeah, forward. That's true. So um yeah, martial arts is relatively new for you as a thing to do, but you became quickly obsessed with it. Yeah. 
Even Fortune. though I didn't know how to um, make a fist when I <laughs> first went in. For, for a while, I was still making a fist with my thumb on the And we side. should say that uh, I'm 53. You're, you just turned 45. Mm-hmm. So you were in your early 40s when we started. I just turned 50, I think, when we started. Um, I was about to turn 50, one or the other. I can't remember. But um, so we, we're like late in life students. Yeah. We're not in our 20s. This is something that we're starting middle-aged mm-hmm. and um, it's hard to start anything in middle age, let alone something that is as hard as learning Kung Fu is. Mm. But um, as I said at the beginning, we're totally obsessed with it and we love it. We go, we train four or five times a week, sometimes for a couple of hours. Uh, we go to the Queen for a couple of hours. We... Uh, Walking around the house, practicing our balancing and our stretching and our kicking and our everything. We're just, yeah, totally hooked and obsessed. You say it's hard and it, yeah, it's true, but like, what else are we going to be doing with our lives? Well, that's, yeah, that's right. Getting old and stiff. Well, I want to be doing something hard. I want to have a challenge. That's part of the allure for me. Like, it is challenging and that lights me up, you know? And it's not just physically challenging, it's mentally yes. challenging and you're forced to think really hard about what you're doing and there's a huge learning curve, constantly mm-hmm. a huge learning curve. And it's just like I've never really liked exercise. I've done it on and off, never really liked it, did it because I knew I had to do something. You've always looked at it as like this chore. Ch- huge chore. There was a never been joy <laughs> no. in it for you ever. And, and I never understood that. You would, you know, people would talk about getting an endorphin hit when they went for a run or went to the gym. Mm. I never got that. As an adult, I probably did when I did karate as a, as a kid. And I was doing, I was lifting weights and doing gym classes all throughout my pregnancy even. Yeah. Up until the day before Fox was born, yeah. I think. But I totally get it now. Like I yeah. come out of every Kung Fu class sore, tired, but- el- feeling terrific. Yeah, but el- <laughs> elated, you know. Yes. Elated. Like, yes. uh, 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 you know, even if I felt like I sucked and I couldn't do anything right and, and you know, I couldn't process anything the Sifu was saying, I still come out of it going, that was the greatest. Like it's just a huge bump. If it's early in the- Sometimes we go to morning classes- Sometimes it's night classes, but either way, we come out of it just pumped. That's true. Exhausted, but pumped. So anyway, um, I was going to easily turn into an hour of us ch- talking just about this. And look, over the course of uh, the course of the show, we will probably talk about lots of different things about us and our lives and other things that we're passionate about. But let's start with kung fu and see where it goes. Let's dive in. Yeah. So the history of Kung Fu obviously needs to be a history of the Shaolin Temple. Even though, as I've learned, Kung Fu or Wushu or there's a lot of different names for it, didn't start in Shaolin. It was quite common throughout China being studied in monasteries and other places for thousand years, 1,500 years maybe, before the Shaolin Temple was ever built. And one of the questions I had is, well, when we associate, when we think about martial arts today, we tend to think about Kung Fu or derivatives of Kung Fu, 
karate, judo, you know, jujitsu, taekwondo, etc. Eagle fang. <laughs> Eagle fang. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Sorry. <laughs> yes, we're huge Cobra Kai fans, obviously. Um, I, I, you know, you were six when Karate Kid came out. I was fourteen, and doing had been doing karate for four years, and was kind of a little bit pissed. A that I wasn't the kid doing karate, that I wasn't the Karate Kid, and B that it was very obvious that the kid who was playing Daniel San had no idea what he was doing. <laughs> like I'd been, you know, pr- training for four years and he was just getting up there and waving his hands around and uh, that kind of – and not only him but Pat Morita, Mr. Miyagi, had no idea what he was doing either. Uh, that was kind of annoying. J- Johnny Lawrence did though. Johnny Lawrence had trained, I believe. Cool. Whatever the actor's name is, I can't remember. <laughs> anyway, enough about my ego blows as a teenager. Um, also, it, it is one other um, piece of evidence that we're in my simulation. Yes. You were the karate kid. Yes. At the, like, I was like, yes. Chrissy saw Crocodile Dundee and ended yeah. up marrying an Australian and moving to Australia. No, but obsessed with that movie, obsessed yeah. with Karate Kid. He's now doing- Man from Snowy River. Yeah. Like, what? And okay. What was the other one? Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Yeah. <laughs> We've, our son is a bit pee-wee. <laughs> yes, we did give birth to a pee-wee adjacent you, you, You're basi- basically, we're, we're convinced I'm living in Chrissy's simulation. Um, so the history of Chinese martial arts I read up on, um, as I said, predates Shaolin by many, many centuries. There's a document called the Shiji or the Records of the Grand Historian written by a guy called Shma Qian, who lived from 145 to 90 BCE. And he wrote a history of basically China going back thousands or more years. His, he came from a, a family of imperial historians, like his father, his grandfather were imperial historians. So they had access to all of these imperial records and he, he travelled around and met people and interviewed people to pull together these stories. And he's considered quite a, a sceptical, uh, scientific kind of historian, which didn't exist in the West, really, for another 1,500 years after him. But he talked about, in the records of the Grand Historian, the presence of martial arts back from like a 1,000 BCE in China in different forms. So it had been around... Uh, a very long time, something that Chinese had been practicing since, you know, the foundation of China pretty much. Um, and this book that he wrote, the records, is astounding. It's uh, four times longer than the history of the Peloponnesian War by Thucydides and longer than the Old Testament. So it's an incredible book, which I'd never even heard of before. Right. So I've been doing a lot of shows about China recently for some of my other podcasts and getting a increasing appreciation for how old China is and how much China had done while the Greeks were still, you know, throwing rocks at each other. Mm-hmm. China had built, you know, ma- mammoth empires and had thought about a lot of stuff. We don't learn a lot stuff. about that and we don't learn a lot about, like you were saying the other day, um, 
you know, things happening in Islam countries. And, yeah. Yeah. One of my series, we're doing uh, the Islamic Golden Age and, you know, the 800 CE, the stuff that these Islamic scholars were coming up with was astounding. Yeah. And Leonardo da Vinci and guys like that that lived 800 years later, seven, 800 years later, were building on the work that these Islamic scholars had done. And anyway. People learning about it are history nerds like you. Yeah, just nerds. Mm. Um, and we're look, and talking about martial arts, like boxing was around in ancient Greece. Uh, the, the the classic Indian Sanskrit epics like the Mahabharata talk about fighting styles, hand-to-hand fighting styles that existed in India. Um, the ancient Parthians, the, 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 the predecessor to the Persians, had a, a style of grappling known as Koshti, which people are still practicing apparently in Iran. Hmm. But... When, as I said before, when we think martial arts today, I think most of us in the West think Asian martial arts. And I wonder how much of that has to do with Bruce Lee. Oh, yeah. I think everything has to do with Bruce Lee. <laughs> it all goes back. I mean, there were kung fu movies before Bruce. Uh, but, you know, I think Bruce just had such a huge impact mm-hmm. on cinema and television in the West and our association with martial arts, it's pretty much all goes back to his influence. Um, that's my working hypothesis anyway, why we think martial arts equals um, Asian martial arts and not these others. And, and you know, the proliferation of martial arts in the West, obviously because of Bruce and Jackie Chan and and people like that because who came Hollywood, after Because of Hollywood, it's the first time I saw anything like that. Yeah. This kid who grew up in, you know, white rural Utah. Was Karate Kid. Yeah. Before yeah. you saw a Bruce Lee movie. Oh, I think sure. my brothers had, they watched like Kung Fu, I think. David Carradine, the yeah, TV show. Yeah, I was really little though and I don't think that I was really paying attention when that was happening. But Yeah. Well, and that was uh, ripped off of Bruce Lee too. Bruce um, pitched a TV show like that to the networks in the US and they said they weren't interested and then came out with the exact same story but with David Carradine, uh, a Mm. white man, in the role instead of Bruce. Before Bruce was famous, I think that happened. Probably around about the time he was doing The Green Hornet. Anyway, so... Let's talk about the Shaolin Monastery for a bit. Uh, built in 495 CE. It's a long time ago. Um, you know, at the same time, Rome had fallen. Rome was sort of uh, not in a good place. Um, there wasn't much going on in Europe in 495 CE. It was the the beginning of the Dark Ages. But... Shaolin was built near a city which still exists today called Luoyang in China, which at the time was one of the biggest cities in the world. It had about half a million people living in it around 495, which would have been more, I think, than was in Rome at that stage because Rome had, had collapsed and the, the um, emperor had moved the primary residence down to Constantinople and you know the, the Western Roman Empire was sort of in chaos. Um. Shaolin Temple was built at the foot of a mountain 
called Songshan, which is in Dongfeng County, Henan Province, northern China, along the southern bank of the Yellow River. And uh, it was it it was sort of had been famous for a long time in China. It's known as the central mountain of the five great mountains of China. And as far back as the first millennium BCE, Chinese uh, mythology had positioned it as the center of heaven and earth. A bit like uh, it's probably Missouri. Missouri for Mormons, yeah. yes, or um, it's where. Probably monkey was born. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, and so this Buddhist temple was built in 495, 496 CE, and it was named for the peak that was next to it, Mount Shaoxi. So it was called Shaolin, which I believe is the forest of Shao Mountain is where it was built. It's like in the bottom of the mountain. Luoyang, by the way, had was built around uh, 700 BCE. There were earlier cities there, but the what became the city of Luoyang had been around for you know, 1,200 years when Shaolin Temple was bought, just uh, built just outside of it. But then we have to talk about the history of Buddha and Buddhism. How much do you know about the history of Buddhism, white girl from Utah? Yeah, that not you. <laughs> Like as much as you would think. <laughs> Do you want to take a guess when Buddha lived? No. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Following in the tradition of my co-hosts. <laughs> you told me I didn't have to prepare. No. I said you just need to giggle a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so Buddha, uh, Siddhartha Gautama, traditionally is said to have lived between the 6th and 5th centuries BCE born in Nepal, so basically India at the time. Um, and most scholars think he lived probably between 563 BCE and 463, 483 BCE. You know, as you would expect, not a lot of real historical evidence for Buddha, but that's you know the, what the, the basic assumption is. So he'd been dead for a 1,000 years before the Shaolin Temple was built. Buddhism had been around for a 1,000 years. But Buddhism was an Indian thing. How did it end up in China? Well, it started to trickle across. So the, the Silk Road, which was sort of the – you know much about the Silk Road? Yeah, the trading highway. Basically. Trading highway, Exactly. So there's a lot of idea sharing that was going on uh, between India and China during sort of the first century CE, and it believed they, they believe that Buddhism sort of made its way from India to China around about then. There's some early translations of Buddhist texts into Chinese around about the second century CE, and it, it sort of started to make its way into China slowly. China's Traditional religions were Confucianism and Taoism. Buddhism slowly started to build up a following in there. And by around about the 200s CE, it started to develop a bit of a presence. But it was really sort of in the 500s and 600s that it really became quite strong and started to get a lot of imperial recognition. But it was um, – there, there's this – 
thing in 547, a history of the temples around Luoyang was written by a guy called Yang. And he mentions that the golden wind chimes that hung along one particular temple's eaves could be heard for three miles and the spire of the temple's pagoda could be seen over 30 miles away. And then he says that there was a monk from the West named Bodhidharma who called it the most imposing structure he'd ever seen. And I think that's the earliest record that we have of Bodhidharma. Now, uh, I mentioned Bodhidharma to a couple of people in the last week and they thought Bodhidharma was the Buddha. Different guy, lived a thousand years after the Buddha. You ever heard of Bodhidharma? Yes, today when we were talking about the podcast. <laughs> Before that, had you ever heard of Bodhidharma? <laughs> no. I've known about, and this blew my mind this week, it's like I've known about Bodhidharma since I started getting interested in Zen when I was like 12 or 13 uh, because he's traditionally considered the founder of Chan Buddhism, which when it went to Japan became known as Zen Buddhism. But I never knew that he was connected to Shaolin Temple until the last couple of weeks when I started reading about the history of Shaolin, which just kind of blew my mind. So these two topics that I've been fascinated with my entire life, Zen Buddhism and Kung Fu, all connected mm. Bodhidharma and the Shaolin Temple, um, which is kind of mind-boggling. Mm. Although... If he actually existed, which seems to be some evidence that he did from this history, the role that he played in either of those is really unknown. It's mostly mythology. You know, there's not a lot of evidence for him or what he did, as you would expect. Um, but he is known as the founder of Chan Buddhism. He's called Bodhidharma was his Indian name. He's known as Dharma in Chinese and Daruma in Japan. They think he travelled to China in around about the 470s to seek enlightenment and to teach Buddhism and eventually, you know, sort of sailed around the Indian coast, Got ended up in China in the 470s, travelled around China for like 20 years and ended up at Shaolin in, I don't know, sort of probably not long after it was built. He wasn't the first abbot. Um, the first abbot was a guy called Batwa, who was uh, teaching traditional Buddhism, um, studying the scriptures, all of that kind of stuff. And there's a there's a there's actually a tradition that Ba was fascinated with Chinese martial arts and was picking his students based on their level of interest in martial arts. So even the, tr the there's like multiple traditions about how. Shaolin became associated with martial arts. And one of them is that the first abbot was into martial arts. Another is that Bodhidharma introduced them to martial arts when he got there. Um, but Bodhidharma arrives and he he's practicing this early form of Chan Buddhism, according to tradition, which is kind of based around a Buddhist sutra called the Lankavatara Sutra, which is all about the direct experience of enlightenment. Okay. Now, this brings us to the second topic that we're interested in, which is enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Eastern philosophy and enlightenment. 
Um, I've been involved in that, as I said. Like I, I started – I got into trouble at my high school when I was 12 or 13 because we had to fill out a form for religious education. We had to write what religion we were and I wrote Zen Buddhist on the top of mine. This is like 1983 – and did you know what that meant? I did. I'd been reading books out of the school library on Zen Buddhism. I don't know why. I think I saw a book on it and thought, oh, I've heard of that. I wonder what it is. Is that what mon- like monkey? Monkey, yeah, yeah, probably. It was probably because of monkey, which was huge in Australia in the that early was 80s. Probably just that seed. Yes. Like deep into that subconscious when deep. you were a kid, you yeah. know. And My entire life has been based on monkey as yeah. a result. But anyway, so um, your introduction to Eastern philosophy was really when you met me, I guess, mm-hmm. 15 years ago? Well, that's not exactly true. I mean, I, I'm not illiterate about uh, Buddhism. I have read things throughout the years and knew the main tenets of, um, I think, Zen Buddhism. I was familiar with that. Um, I can't remember what it was that I read, but I read and listen to stuff all the time. And yeah, but I think really diving in and um, studying, considering, stretching my brain around it, yeah, it was with you. Mm. And it's had a big impact on both of our lives, you know. Definitely. It's sort of, like, sort of my introduction to it seriously was a few years, like um, when I was I don't know, eighteen or nineteen. I was trying to get sober. I'd, I'd been trying to kill myself with alcohol when I was seventeen, eighteen, because I was miserable, and uh, met a guy, um, Bob, who's still around, and he got me interested in philosophy. Not Didn't call it Zen, called it sort of non-duality or Advaita. But Advaita is basically the Zen of Hinduism. Um, it's called Chan in, in, in China, Zen in Japan, and Advaita in India. It's got a different tradition, but, you know, it's the same sort of teaching advaita translates as non-duality and and you know pretty much i you know i'm convinced that his intro his introducing me to that at that age probably saved my life i, I probably would have uh not lasted many years where my head was at um at that age so it's it's played a huge role in my life and that's why i always say that you saved my life too because I came, I started really seriously um, becoming curious and almost hungry for it when I was getting sober, because I've been sober now, how many years has it been? Coming up 13 this year, I think, 12 or 13, 2012, so it'd be 12 years this year. Right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that's been part of my sober journey, I guess. Yeah. It was diving into that and it really, I think, fulfilled that spirituality part of the, I don't know, the healing process. 
that has to happen, I think, sometimes. Yeah. The investigation into, I mean, asking the big questions, I guess. Who, who am I? What am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? How do I live my life? Mm-hmm. You and I both, we, we can just say um, we're part of AA, right? Is that something we can say? I'm not sure I could say I am anymore. I haven't been to a meeting 30 years, but I was. That's how I got sober. Yeah, Yeah. well, I'm saying we were in that program. We got sober through AA, yeah. Yeah, so even getting over step one, Advaita came in to help me figure that out. Yeah. Because I'm def- I was definitely not going to pretend that I believed in Christianity. Yeah. Or a god. Yeah. So, yeah, that helped me through that. Yeah. Anyway. So, um, and we, I want to talk about this in some detail because this is central to the story of Shaolin Temple. So, well before it became known as the center of Kung Fu, which really didn't happen until the 1500s, for a thousand years, it was the major center, particularly in northern China, of Chan Buddhism. And tradition says that that was introduced by Bodhidharma. So, I mean, for people that aren't familiar with Zen or non-duality teachings of any sort, hold on, Chrissy's just going to pour us more tea. Ah. Being Chinese night, we have to drink tea. Now it's Indian. But Bodhidharma introduced tea to China. We'll get to that according to tradition later. Um, the Lanka Vatara Sutra is really about using uh, a direct concept of, of emptiness, um, just using your mind to perceive the real nature of things as opposed to other forms of Buddhism which taught certain practices or studying the scriptures, living a good life, you know, the rightfold path and all of that kind of stuff. Chan Buddhism, Zen Buddhism and Advaita teach just a a direct path to becoming aware of the illusory nature of things. And that is, you know, what Bodhidharma, according to tradition, introduced into not just China but into the world because he's, I mean, he, he was basing it on the Lankavatara Sutra, but he became the sort of the founder of the school of Buddhism known as Chan. Whether or not he was, probably not, but that's, you know, the, the, what tradition ascribes to him. And I guess, uh, you know, what, what all of these non-duality philosophies are teaching is that there's just one thing, not many things. In my terminology, thanks, it's just the universe. There is only one thing, it is the universe, and I, you, we are that. There's no separation. Separation is illusion. I wrote a book about it some years ago. Um, and... It's fascinating to me that Kung Fu came out of Shaolin Temple, which was 
had been for a thousand years the main place, particularly in northern China, that was teaching this philosophy and what the connection is between non-duality philosophy and Kung Fu. Like how does one influence the other and how do they work together? How does that philosophical understanding improve your practitioner, your practitioner, your practice Mm -hmm. of Kung Fu? Right. Is one of the things I want to explore. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, go on. Mm. <laughs> well, before I do that, talk about how non-duality has helped you in the last 10 years. I, f- I honestly feel like there could be an episode on that. And there will be probably over time, but high level. Well. Like practically. How has it helped you? Practically, except accepting that everything has to happen exactly how it happens. I'm just along for the ride. Um, what there's, there's what does just, that do for you? It, it allows me to release the illusion of control in my life. Um, it allows me to... Accept reality for what it is. Um, it allows me in times that are bad to know, you know, this is exactly what's meant to be happening right now. I don't know why it's happening, but it's, ex- it's supposed to be happening right now. I don't know. There's, um, it, I, I would say it just trickles into my whole mindset Really, I'm less reactive, usually. <laughs> um, my view of myself doesn't have so much identity there, you know, anymore. It's just, it. yeah, it's all about this experience that I get to experience. So, I don't know. I I could talk a lot more. But um, I guess I wasn't prepared for sort of a nutshell answer to that. But, yeah, I, I, I guess it helps me with that pure, pure acceptance. And I feel like with pure acceptance, there is happiness and weirdly a lot of freedom, which I think a lot of people don't are afraid of non-duality because then they think, well, then I'm just trapped Mm. in this narrative and I don't want to be in it. And really the opposite has been true in my experience. There's such such freedom. You let go of so much that is just um bullshit. <laughs> yeah. That's not helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean in my 30 odd years of being involved in Non-duality philosophy, I believe it's not only saved my life, but has enabled me to live without uh, anxiety, without fear, without guilt, without resentment, without anger, because none of those emotions really make sense in a non-dualistic philosophy. There's no, there's no room for them. You don't have to try and 
talk yourself out of them. There's just no basis for them when you accept that there is only one thing and it's just functioning as it has to function and you are witnessing that as it unfolds. You can't be angry at a cloud for blowing through the sky. It's just what the cloud has to do based on mm. <laughs> what's happening to its its atoms at that particular point in time. I mean, you might be angry, but... You don't get angry at Mother Nature no, for well, dumping rain. Some people do, but it's not a very productive <laughs> exercise. Yeah, like wh- <laughs> why? Yeah. Mm. And when you realise that free will is an illusion and doesn't exist and science is pretty much unified in its confirmation of that, neuroscientists, et cetera, um, that when you, when you accept that free will has never existed, can't possibly exist because uh, it sort of would break the laws of physics, that actions are based on decisions, There's decisions are thoughts, thoughts are properties of the brain, the brain operates according to the laws of chemistry, and so every action is the result of just the laws of chemistry playing out when you let go of the idea of free will, which I did 30 years ago, you can't really be angry at other people for doing things because you know that they don't have any control over what they do. It's just the laws of chemistry. It's the state of their brain playing out as it is in the moment. You can't be angry at yourself because you realize that things that you have done uh, is exactly what had to happen, what you had to do based on the chemical state of your brain at the time, which mm-hmm. you have no control over. Mm-hmm. Um so guilt, anger, resentment against things that your parents have done or other people have done just disappears because it has no it has no logical framework to reside in. It doesn't make sense. Right. Like you said, being angry at the weather uh, or being angry at a toddler or being angry at a cat, a kitten for... Being cute. <laughs> being so cute. <laughs> You know, yeah. Exploding my brain with cuteness. (laughs) (sighs) Being angry at TikTok videos of cute kittens and you just needing to show them to me and and just giggling while you do it. (laughs) Oh, dear. Yes, that makes no sense. Not to say that, you know, I don't have moments of anger or anxiety, but they don't last long because they don't make any sense. Well, that's just it. Like, we're still... Um, we still appear to be humans living an emotional experience, actually. Um, to varying degrees. Yeah. I still cry during Doctor Who episodes. You still cry, like... <laughs> Bollywood oh films? Yes. <laughs> you, you cry if you're talking about anything a little bit heroic. Yes. There's a me. hero complex thing, mm. or a or a or you know a martyr thing like Vincent Van Gogh dying before his art was truly appreciated. Yeah, yeah, gets yeah. me, gets me in the feels, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know why. And you think it's hilarious? It is because it's a game for me now. And yes, the game is. <laughs> <clears throat> you can. Tell. I'll be washing yeah. the dishes, and you're just talking to me and telling me a story. My brain already knows the quality of this story fits into that category of like heroic or like I know the quality of whatever. It could be a song. Yeah. It could, like I just know this. And then there's like this little tiny change in your voice yeah. that only I would detect. Yes. But I know and Fox it. And now. I'm like, are you crying? Fox picks it up now too. 
Are you crying, Dad? Yeah. Yes. No. Shut up. <laughs> shut up. You're crying. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> I'm not crying. You're crying. But that—that's you know your philosophy spiel, basically. Yes. Um, the way you understand it. The what I'm sort of wanting to get into is what what Chan Buddhism how it's kind of articulated, how it was understood. Hmm. Um, and how, yeah, I'm interested in the why Kung Fu mm -hmm. entwined with this philosophy or how the cultural aspect of that kind of seeped into it. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and I don't know the answer to that yet. That's one of the things I want to explore by doing the research on it. And even if there is one, I mean, martial arts were being practiced right across China, as I said, from, you know, well before Bodhidharma arrived with uh, Chan Buddhism. And at various points in time with warring kingdoms going on and, and you know, warring you know, um, factions, it was necessary for people to defend themselves. And there were periods when weapons were outlawed by various emperors. Um, so they had to use hand-to-hand -hand combat if they were going to protect their monastery from, you know, warring tribes or raiders or whatever it was. And Shaolin got destroyed a couple of times in different conflagrations that they were caught in the middle of. So maybe it had nothing to do with Chan Buddhism and it was just about um, uh, you know, the need to defend themselves and they just happened to become really good at it. Although, you know, uh, Bruce Lee went to University of Washington to study philosophy, primarily Chan and Taoism, which we'll talk about. I've got some quotes from Bruce coming up. Um, so even if Kung Fu... The development of Kung Fu at Shaolin had nothing to do with Chan Buddhism, and that was just a coincidence. The question then is, does uh, an understanding of non-duality help a, protect, a practitioner of Kung Fu? Bruce certainly thought so. I think so. Bodhidharma, um, there's, a, there's a number of traditions around Kung Fu and Bodhidharma. One is the... Um, there, there's a 17th century story found in a manual called the Yi Jin Jing, which is a series of exercises, um, breathing exercises, stretching exercises, strengthening exercises, that um, according to tradition, Bodhidharma either introduced into Shaolin or left behind when he left Shaolin or when he died – there's various versions of the story. One popular version is that when he went to Shaolin, he, did, he found the monks were all sort of weak and unhealthy, so he introduced all of these strengthening exercises to them, and that became the foundation of Kung Fu. Another tradition is that he died and they found this book of stretching exercises, breathing, strengthening in his grave or amongst his 
uh, things, or another one is that he left and he left it behind and they found it in his room. And according to those traditions, it was written in Sanskrit, which none of the monks understood. And there is a story that one monk took the book and travelled around China looking for someone to translate it. He eventually found a monk at another monastery who could translate the Sanskrit. But he said it's it's too complicated to just translate. You need to stay here in the monastery and we will work through it together. And the monk did. And after 100 days of practising, he became quite strong. In the next 100 days, his entire body had received the full benefit. And the third 100 days, his constitution became as hard as steel and he felt he could be a Buddha. He was ripped. <laughs> he was he was Shah Rukh Khan, <laughs> ripping his shirt off. Yeah, just, arms stretched yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Um, but historians tend to doubt uh, the story. Most modern historians seem to think that this Xi Jinping was composed by a Taoist priest called Xi Ning in the early 1600s. Um, which is kind of surprising because it's associated with a Buddhist monastery and he was a Taoist. And he wrote one of the prefaces, I think, to one of the earliest known publications of this. And and they think that even though he was attributing it to Bodhidharma, that he may have actually written the whole thing himself. Um, there's a There was a, a Japanese martial arts scholar called Ryushi Matsuda, who said that the earliest surviving edition of the Yi Jing was 1827, and in the course of his research, he couldn't find any mention of it or of Bodhidharma before the 19th century, hmm. or Bodhidharma's association with it before the 19th century. So it seems like it may be mythology, but on the flip side, Bodhidharma came from India, and these monks were not the healthiest, it's possible that he introduced them to some form of yoga practice, stretching and breathing. May have had nothing to do with, um, you know, martial arts as such, but a basis in yoga, which then suggests that maybe, you know, martial arts as we think of it, kung fu, comes from yoga practices originally. Don't you remember, though, we looked up yoga and what we know about yoga is like, <laughs> it's kind of new. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> out yeah. of like California or something. Didn't you read that? Yeah. So like, what is that? What What is the historical basis of that? Yes, yeah, I think it's probably that. pretty shaky. Yeah. But um, I think that we have to look. We have to do a fact check on that. Yeah, the history of okay. I'll make that a note for the next one. What's the history of yoga? That'll be another series. Yoga fused. <laughs> Not yogurt fused. Oh, but I'm ching. Because you make your own yogurt every night, pretty much. I do. And you're not confused about that. You do a bloody good job. Thanks. Bruce Lee was a student of China, as I said, and he studied at your old university, UW, University of Washington, a little bit before you got there. <laughs> um, I was reading earlier today a, an edition of Black Belt magazine from November 1967 when they were asking the question, this guy who plays Kato in the Green Hornet TV show, can he really do Kung Fu or is he just faking it? 
uh, because no one knew who Bruce Lee was mm-hmm. in 1967. He was on this TV show, but that was it. And so they 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 did uh, two editions. I think October and November they were did some uh, big sort of a lot of coverage on Bruce, and they were like, "Oh no, he's the real deal." And they went and watched him train, and they talked about his Jeet Kune Do schools that he was running, and uh, they talked about Yip Man and Wing Chun and all this kind of stuff. But there's a quote from Bruce in this uh, 1967 magazine. He said, the best illustration is something I borrowed from Chan or Zen. Before I studied the art, a punch to me was just like a punch, a kick just like a kick. After I learned the art, a punch is no longer a punch, a kick is no longer a kick. Now that I've understood the art, a punch is just like a punch, a kick is just like a kick. (laughs) How do you – what do you make out of that? Well, um, a couple of things. So this is uh, uh, sort of a reframing of an old Zen uh, saying, which is before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Mm-hmm. And the way I've always understood that is, you know, when – you know, okay, before enlightenment, before you study philosophy – you don't think about it. You chop wood, you carry water. When you start studying philosophy, you start pulling concepts apart and constructs apart and you start thinking, okay, well, if it's all the oneness, what is the wood and what is the water and how am I separate from the wood and the water? And you start to sort of... You dice, you, you totally deconstruct it all. Exactly. You have yeah. to. That's what... You know, the process of Zen is or non-duality is all about. It's about deconstructing the constructs, the mental constructs you have about the nature of identity and your place in the world and, and deeply thinking it through and trying to dispel yourself of the illusions that you've probably had since you were a child. And then once you've been through that process, you're just accepting the, the the nature of the the perception of reality as being the perception of reality. And so you just go back to chop wood, carry water. You're in the moment. You're doing what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. You don't have to analyze it anymore. You don't have to think about it. Like there's, there's this old Zen, you know, head of a koan, K-O-A-N. Yes, because you've told me about it. Yeah. I was about to say there's a word for that, right? Right. A minute ago. Yeah. Well, it's probably not a koan. Koans were... I think primarily a um, Japanese um, riddle invention. Yeah, riddles designed to kind of break your brain and uh, in different ways that might help lead to uh, an enlightenment experience. Break narratives. Yeah, so there was, uh, I think one of the ones that comes to mind is there was, um, uh, you know, two monks that were being interviewed by the Zen master, and he said there was a a flag waving in the wind. He said, is that flag uh, waving or not waving? And one um, monk said, it's not waving, there is no flag, there is no wind, it's all the oneness, and the monk hit him on the head with a stick. And the other one said, "Uh, the flag is waving, it is in the wind, it's all real, and he hit him on the head with a stick. That's the story. And you have to try to make sense of it somehow when it, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, my interpretation of that would be they're both stuck in the concepts. Like in a classic Zen koan, 
the one who would get away with it would be the one that would just walk up and kick over the water bowl and walk a bowl of water and walk out the room. Mm-hmm. Refuses to engage in conceptual constructs. And the famous story of the Buddha, um, who he passed his uh, um, mantle onto. He was sitting around before he died with a bunch of his disciples, and they're asking questions. He was asking them questions about the nature of reality, and they were they were all giving him different sort of answers. And he gets to one disciple who just picks up a flower, and he was the guy that the Buddha passed his um, mantle onto when he died, or the, the the cloak of invisibility, or whatever it was that he had. Favorite student award. Yeah, <laughs> student of the month. Yeah, award. Yeah, because he just he cut through the bullshit. He cut through the concepts, and you know, demonstrated that he wasn't buying into any conceptual constructs by just picking up a flower. And probably regurgitating language. Yes, you know, regurgitating language, and yeah. And then in the Tao of Jeet Kune Do, which is a book I read a little while ago, that. Uh, came out after Bruce died, but it was sort of um, based on all of his notes and his notebooks and things that he was compiling to write a book. He never got around to it before he died. He actually quotes uh, the Xin Xin Ming, which has been a favourite of mine since Bob introduced me to it when I was 19 or 20, written by Shung San, who was the third patriarch of Chan, so Bodhidharma, uh, passed it on to uh, Hui Kei and Hui Kei passed it on to Xing Shan. And it's this great sort of long um, prose poem about non-duality. But Bruce in the Tao of Jeet Kune Do quotes the opening of it. The perfect way is only difficult for those who pick and choose. Do not like, do not dislike. All then will be clear. Make a hairbreadth difference and heaven and earth are set apart. If you want the truth to stand clear before you, never be for or against. The struggle between for and against is the mind's worst disease. Mm-hmm. So I should say that um, I was introduced to a lot of these ideas weirdly before, way before I started Kung Fu, probably like in, I don't know, 2000. 13, or maybe when Fox was born, 14. Um, but I was listening to um, Shannon Lee's podcast. Bruce's daughter? Yes. What was that podcast called? Be Like Water? No, I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> I think it was just called the Bruce Lee podcast, maybe. Could have been, yeah. Um, it's like 10 years ago, 11 years but ago. But I listened to the whole thing because I had this natural in interest in this philosophy mm-hmm. and I loved it. And, you know, I was early years sobriety at that time, just eating it up really curious, but um, yeah, it's really interesting that that little tidbit is interesting to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'd boned up a little bit on this philosophy years ago before I ever even thought, huh, I should do that. Yeah. And when I suggested we would do Wing Chun, um, you didn't even know about the connection between Bruce and Wing Chun and no, Yip Man or any really. of that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know? because I don't catalog little facts like you do. No, you're not a nerd about that kind of stuff. Yeah. If it was violin, classical music, 
Yeah, I can. I, can, I know my stuff. That's my. Chrissy's a violin teacher. Has been her whole life. Have I? <laughs> have you? You think my whole life has been the years I've been with you? <laughs> you were a violin Remember teacher you before you me met me. Oh, uh, yeah. Just yeah. joking. Yes. Well, I'm in your sim. You're not in mine. So, That's right. Yeah. It is my I only sim. know about There's your evidence. real life what you tell me. <laughs> so Bodhidharma um, is the subject of many legends as well. Um, along with Zen and Kung Fu, he supposedly brought tea to China. So this is a great story. This is like a Bollywood film. He, it is. He, 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 he yeah. did it all. It's like, like triple R. Come on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He started Kung Tu, he invented tea. <laughs> yeah. But the story is great. So he, um, when he got to Shaolin, he, um, he, he didn't have, he, like, he didn't, no one was interested in his teachings of Chan Buddhism because they, they were traditional Mahayana Buddhism, you know, studying the scriptures, that kind of stuff. He was like, you don't need all, you don't need all that. You know, you just need to get straight to the truth. So he went and found a cave nearby where he decided to sit and meditate, searching for enlightenment himself. And the, the, the story is that he sat in this cave all day, every day for years. And then uh, at one point during the summer, he started to get tired and he felt his eyes drooping. So he took a knife and cut his eyelids off so he wouldn't sleep. As you do. As you do. <laughs> and he threw his eyelids on the ground and where they fell, tea trees grew from them and the monks who drank the tea from the tea trees discovered that it kept them awake when they were meditating. So that's where, that's how tea came to China is the story. That would have been the coolest drug since. <laughs> yeah. yeah, what were they on? They were super high. Um but uh, there's this other great story about his, uh, which is quite, well, by the way, sorry. So all of the depictions you see of Bodhidharma, um, he's always got big bulging eyes, partly because he was from India um, and partly because he didn't have any eyelids because he cut them off according to tradition. I'm just thinking of Kenan Thompson right now. <laughs> <laughs> Kenan Thompson eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, It'd be, be funny if they made a film about Body Dharma and they cast Keenan Thompson. Oh, he would be so good. Yeah. <laughs> he just does the eyes. Yeah. And they're like, that guy has no eyelids. He must have cut them <laughs> off. Pass me another cup of tea. So this other great story, uh, one that I remember reading about when I was very young, is eventually um, a, a young guy approached Bodhidharma in his cave and said he wanted to be his student, his disciple. Bodhidharma told him to go away. Uh, apparently this kid had a background in either traditional Buddhism or Taoism and Bodhidharma didn't think he was serious enough. So um, according to one tradition, Bodhidharma said he would only take him when the heavens turned the snow red. And so the guy cut his arm off and the blood turned the snow red. So Bodhidharma figured he was serious and took him in. Um, and then when he was bandaging up his arm said, let's not be so fucking dramatic next time. <laughs> I see, like, <laughs> you actually, it really helps to have two arms yeah. <laughs> when you do this Kung Fu. <laughs> you could have just like 
sliced your palm open or something. Yeah. He goes, dude, you cut your eyelids off. Like, who are you to talk? He goes, yeah, fair point. Fair point. You got me there. All right. Let's just say from now on, no one cuts anything off. Yeah. Can we just agree on that? No but more got, cutting. But we got tea from my island, so what do you have? Yeah, what do you bring to the table? <laughs> Let's just bury the knives. That's what I'm saying. Let's get rid of the knives. Yeah. I don't think we can be trusted around <laughs> no sharp, sharp implements. Object. Sharp implements. That is why it's hand-to-hand, hand-to-hand combat. combat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They couldn't be trusted around <laughs> sharp objects. Um, the other story about this young guy is he said to Bodhidharma, my mind is not at peace. Please pacify it for me. Bring your mind here and I'll pacify it for you, said Bodhidharma. I've searched for my mind, the kid said, but I cannot find it anywhere. I have now completely pacified your mind for you, said Bodhidharma. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. That's, that's a good con. Non-duality teaching in one hit, right? Mm-hmm. If you can't find the mind, ignore it. Yeah. Yeah, see through it. Or you're crazy. All that. You've lost <laughs> your damn mind. So this student, when Bodhidharma died in um, 528, according to some sources, he was poisoned by a jealous monk. Uh, he passed uh, his his mantle as the patriarch of Chan Buddhism onto this one-armed monk, Huike, um, who became the second patriarch of Chan Buddhism. He probably was a guy that just had one arm and somebody said to him one day, why do you only have one arm? And he told him this story, shit-faced drunk at the time. Yeah, or like just total bullshitting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, Hey, I've- watch this. He said to this young guy, yeah, so I cut my arm off and, you know. Yeah. thousand years later, people still believe the story. Yeah. Um, there is in at Shaolin. There's a a, a stele, um, a st- like a stone tablet thing with an inscription dated 728, so about 200 years after Bodhidharma supposedly died, and it talks about Bodhidharma having lived at on the mountain, and there's another dated 798 that has Huike chopping his arm off. So two to 250 years after these things apparently happened, they're being uh, recorded at Shaolin. That's the earliest evidence that we have of these stories. Hmm. That's a long time, 200, 250 years. Oh, yeah. Um, But there's a suggestion that these stories were at least around at Shaolin a couple of hundred years later. Those stories are really old stories. One final story. Legend has it that after Bodhidharma's death, uh, Chinese monk is traveling somewhere in, in Middle Asia and he meets Bodhidharma walking down the road with carrying a sandal in his hand. No sandal, no sandals on his feet. He's carrying one sandal in his hand. The guy asks him where he's going and he says he's returning to India The guy rushes to Shaolin, they dig up Bodhidharma's grave and it's empty except for one sandal. What? (laughs) I mean. The relevance of that? (laughs) 
I'm not quite sure. It really sounds like some weird Christian story that I would have heard growing up. Yeah, yeah, It yeah. does. It just has well, all there's that. there's a good reason for that. The stories are stories. Humans yeah. make up stories and why that story. Maybe somebody robbed his body out of the grave and that was the story they came up with to explain it. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't be the first example of grave robbery in history. Yeah. Him and Jesus both disappeared from their graves. Yeah. People had to make up stories to explain it. Um, but I just want to finish by saying that some scholars think that Chan Buddhism actually was a an example of syncretism. Syncretism is what they call it when two cultures with two religions meet and sort of start swapping spit, mm-hmm. French kissing religions or yeah. philosophies. Yeah. Um, Intertwining ideas. Yes. Um, D.T. Suzuki, very famous uh, Japanese uh, scholar of Zen Buddhism, said that Chan was a natural evolution of Buddhism under Taoist conditions because it has a lot of similarities with Taoism. Um, the other examples uh, of syncretism that I always think about is Stoicism and Epicureanism emerged in Athens in you know around about 300 CE after Alexander the Great had taken his armies to India mm-hmm. and then they went back to Greece and sort of took a little bit of Indian philosophy, Buddhist philosophy, and merged it with Greek philosophy, and then they had Stoicism and Epicureanism, and vice versa. Cross-pollination. Cross-pollination, yeah. Or swapping spit I like better, but sure, if you want to be dry and boring about it, you can call it that. You're like French kissing with the tongues. (laughs) Tongues or tongs? Is that a Chinese reference? Yeah. Um, Bruce Lee, at the end of this 1967 article, said, Seven seven hundred million Chinese can't all be Wong. No. We're talking about kung fu. He did not. He did. Wow. Yeah, he made a Chinese joke. Would have got cancelled if he did that today. Anyway, um, the uh, where was I going with that? Oh, cross pollination. On, on the other side of it, before Alexander went to China, uh, sorry, before he went to India, they never had physical depictions of Buddha, you know, little fat man uh, Buddha statues, they didn't do that. Buddha was only depicted as like footprints on the sand. There was no human character of Buddha in India before the Greeks. But then the Greeks came with all their statues of Apollo, Zeus, etc., etc., and um, the Indians went, oh, yeah, right, statues. Sure, you could do statues? Shit, how did we not figure that out for the last 2,000 years? Let's do that. Um, And, of course, uh, Christianity, uh, I think, is a syncretism between um, agricultural mystery religions uh, that, you know, sort of came out of ancient Greece and out of Egypt and Judaism. This is, I think, very strong evidence that uh, the, the, the Eucharist tradition eat this bread, it is my body, drink this wine, it is my blood, mm-hmm. which according to the writings of St. Paul is a tradition that he was given, so it goes back, makes no sense from the perspective of Judaism, makes perfect sense from the perspective of agrarian mystery cults that were very popular 
in the Roman Empire around about the first century CE, because when you know, the cults of Dionysus, of Isis and Osiris, the gods of the grain, the gods of the grape, when you eat bread, you are literally eating the body of the grain god, uh, Isis or Osiris. When you drink wine, you're literally drinking the body of the grape god, Dionysus. Yeah, that thread is in there. Yeah, it seems really obvious from an agrarian mystery cult perspective and it just sort of syncretized Paul or somebody before Paul syncretized it into this Judaic uh, thing that he was doing and um, boom, shakalaka, boom, Christianity. You got it. Let's mm -hmm. go with a little bit of a- Shake the Yahtzee yeah. cup. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Double sixes, let's go. Yeah. All right, that is the first episode of Confused. When we come back next time. We're going to be more confused. We'll be even more. If you were confused at the start of this. Yeah, we were all over the place. No, we I weren't. There it. was a lovely logical progression there. Okay. Don't tell me how to. Oh, I came up with a term from I'm a podcastorian. Oh, that is good. Pod, I think I just invented that. Cool. I'm a podcastorian. What am I? The wife of a podcast Dorian. Oh wow! But after we finish dreamed. this series, you can you can put that on your business card as well, podcast Dorian. It's so bonkers to me that a I do kung fu at all. It's like who who's this? What? Yeah. And then b that I'm doing a history podcast. What? <laughs> You've corrupted me by getting me to put chili on everything. Yeah, there's been a cross-pollination with yeah, us, too. and a lot of spit-swapping. True. Speaking of which. <laughs> it's almost 11 p.m. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Bye.